0: Today's episode is sponsored by Tego. For most of us, indemnity insurance is one of our biggest costs of practice. But when was the last time you took a look at the coverage and compared your premium with others?
1: Many of us are still with the same insurer we joined in med school or intern year. Thousands of doctors have made the switch to Tego and benefited from their personalized approach to pricing. You will also get an extra two months free in your first year.
0: If you are new to private practice, you might even qualify for four years of discounted premiums.
1: Tigo offers competitive premiums, quality cover, and 24-7 support backed by top medico-legal advisors.
0: Get a free quote
1: and discover why
0: thousands of doctors are insured by Tigo by visiting tigo.com.au. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the Part 2 anaesthetic exam.
1: I'm Dr. Kate McCrossan. and I'm Dr. Kate Steele and today's episode is it's not over till it's over part two where we talk through different case scenarios addressing problems in the post anaesthetic care unit.
0: As always in this podcast we represent our
1: own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. So let's jump right in with more cases. Are you ready Kate? Sure am. Okay so you're the consultant on call in a major tertiary hospital one of your colleagues calls you to give a handover about the last patient on their orthopedic list. The patient is a 23-year-old male, 65 kilos, and has had an open reduction internal fixation of a tibial plateau fracture. He had a general anesthetic and intraoperatively received 200 mics of fentanyl on induction, paracetamol 1 gram IV, and oxycodone 7 milligrams IV throughout the case. You were told that he wasn't really awake, but seemed comfortable when he was dropped off in the PACU. Five minutes later, you get a phone call from the charge nurse in PACU asking for a review of the same patient who is now awake and in severe pain. In the background, you can hear a male voice crying out What are your thoughts about this situation? Oof, crying out, that's ominous, isn't it? Hmm. So look,
0: in this case, my priorities are balanced between finding out more information so that I can make good decisions for this patient, but also immediately implementing additional pain relief over the phone. Now, I already know what the patient has had intraoperatively, but I want to know what the PACU nurses have given
1: since the patient woke up. The nurse tells you that the patient just woke up and started screaming. They haven't given anything in PACU because the anaesthetist forgot to prescribe post-op analgesia. Very naughty colleague. When asked for more history, the nurse responds that he hasn't had time to review any paperwork. He asks you to come and review the patient.
0: Okay. So first and foremost, I'm going to give a phone order to the PACU nurses to start either a morphine or an oxycodone pain protocol on this patient. Mm -hmm. I'm also going to head around to the PACU to see the patient. And ideally, I'd like to get there within about five minutes. And in this instance, I don't feel the need to drop what I'm doing and run, but I also don't want to delay my review. And why is that? Look, severe pain can be incredibly distressing to patients, and it's not something I feel is appropriate to delay managing. As well as this, I don't want the patient's behaviour to escalate into anger, and that could potentially cause injury to either himself or to the staff members. And lastly, it's distressing for other patients in the PACU to witness another patient in extremis like this.
1: Okay, so you arrive at the PACU to see a very distressed patient writhing around in the bed and shouting. There are several nurses at the bedside trying to calm the patient without success. One nurse is administering morphine via the patient's IV. What is your approach to this situation?
0: So while I'm talking to the nurses and getting more information about this patient, I'm going to do a quick scan of the OBS on the monitor as well as scanning the patient's surrounds just to make sure he isn't going to hurt himself. If he's writhing around and looks like he's really going to injure himself on the bed, I'll ask a nurse to get the long thin bed rail pads and attach them to the bed rails. If the patient looks like he is angry as well as in pain, I want to make sure to minimise the risk to the staff and in this instance I'd probably call security. As well as this, I also want to reassure the patient, you know, that we know he's in severe pain and that we're actively trying to get it under control. Now because the morphine is only now being administered, I want to wait a few minutes to see if there's any obvious improvement in the patient's demeanour before prescribing
1: anything else. You know, I think just getting some analgesia into this patient is definitely yeah, the first priority. Yeah. So you were told that the patient has just received five milligrams of morphine intravenously. At this point, he is just distressed and he's not being abusive towards staff, none of whom feel threatened by him. A brief scan of the anaesthetic assessment indicates that he is generally healthy with no allergies. He smokes marijuana several times a day and is on the methadone program. What is going through your mind at this time?
0: Well, several things. So, first, this patient is both on chronic opioid therapy and consumes marijuana, and both of these contribute to pain that is more challenging to control post operatively. Second, this patient has had a procedure that is known to be painful, and I suspect that his intraoperative analgesia was insufficient to control his pain. Now, keeping all of this in mind, I expect that this patient will likely need larger doses of opioids to achieve comfort, which means that I want him to be closely monitored for adverse effects like respiratory depression and also sedation. And as well as this, I'm going to try to administer some non-opioid analgesics where I can and aim for a more multimodal analgesic approach.
1: Are you aware of any other risk factors for severe post-operative pain?
0: Look, I won't lie, I've never come across any neat and complete lists, but here are some that I've put together from several sources over the years. So patient factors include things like younger age, female gender. Of note, there is variable evidence about gender, so Mm. this is one that I keep in the back of my mind more than anything else. Smoking history obesity, sleep difficulties, preoperative pain, anxiety, depression, fear of surgery or psychological distress, preoperative opioid use, preoperative analgesic use and cannabis consumption. Regarding anaesthetic factors, really the only information I found is that a multimodal approach provides better pain relief and with regards to surgical factors, these can include prolonged surgery or the type of surgery and surgical approach.
1: So the five milligrams of morphine that the nurse has administered doesn't seem to elicit any effect. What are the next steps that you're going to take?
0: Well, first, I'm going to get the nurse to continue administering the morphine as per the post-operative protocol. And while this is happening, I'm going to ensure that we continue to take regular observations. And these include oximetry, heart rate and blood pressure monitoring. Second, I'm going to prescribe some non-opioid adjuncts. I'm going to prescribe an NSAID, so paracoxib 40 milligrams IV and clonidine 30 micrograms IV, I'm also going to continue to reassure the patient that we're working on getting his pain under control. Now, when the patient becomes less distressed and I feel that I can have a more coherent conversation, I'll try and get some more information about the nature of the pain. And lastly, I want to make sure that I'm not missing any possible sources of additional distress. So I'm going to request a bladder scan to make sure the bladder isn't over-distended, because this in and of itself can cause extreme distress and agitation. Just, I'm a bit of a giggle to
1: myself because you're so gentle with the clonidine. I probably would have whacked him like <laughs> 90 micrograms straight oh, up Look, my point, approach but... to
0: any sort of medicine is you can always put more in, but you can't take it out that's once true, it's in.
1: <laughs> that's true. Maybe, yeah, maybe I'm giving too much. Who knows? So it's your patient. So uh, the patient has now received the following. <laughs> so paracetamol 1 gram, paracox 40 milligrams, 18 milligrams of intravenous morphine and 30 mics of clonidine. He's no longer thrashing around, but he's still groaning and stating that he has bad pain in his leg. Oxygen saturations are 98% on 6 litres via Hudson, heart rate's 105, blood pressure 160 on 80 and his respiratory rate is 20. Bladder scan yielded 800 mils of urine for which the nurses inserted a urinary catheter. Where do you go from here? So now that the patient is less distressed,
0: I'm going to get more history about the character of the pain and whether there is a neuropathic component because this may mean I should consider other treatment options that I typically wouldn't for routine post-operative pain. I'm going to get the nurse to continue administering morphine as per the pain protocol, as the patient's behaviour and OBS suggest that he is indeed in pain, as he states, and I feel that he can probably handle more opioids safely at this stage. I'm also going to administer an additional dose of clonidine, so another 30 micrograms, and I'm going to make sure that the patient has had an antiemetic.
1: The patient tells you that his leg is throbbing at the site and said it, says it is 9 out of 10 in severity. He denies any burning pain or electric shocks. He keeps asking when the pain is going to get better. What are your options for additional immediate pain control?
0: Well, the good news is that there doesn't appear to be a neuropathic component to the pain at this stage. The bad news is that he's still in pain. So my options at this point include giving tramadol, 100 milligrams intravenously, ketamine, additional clonidine or a rescue nerve block. And in this case, I'd consider a femoral or a ductal canal block as well as a sciatic block. Yay, for blogs.
1: You administer tramadol 100 milligrams IV as the PACU nurse continues giving morphine as per the protocol. The patient has now received 24 milligrams of morphine in total. His observations are oxygen sats 96% on 6 litres, heart rate 95, blood pressure 150 on 75 and respiratory rate 15. The patient states that his pain is now 8 out of 10 but still bad. What are you going to do now?
0: Now at this point, the patient has had quite a fair bit of opioid analgesia, but of course he's quite opioid tolerant given that he's on methadone. At this point, there are two options. I can try some intravenous ketamine or offer a sciatic block and a femoral nerve block.
1: So why didn't you offer a nerve block when you first saw this patient?
0: So there are a couple of reasons. The first is that when the patient was extremely distressed, he would have been unable to provide true informed consent for the nerve block. The second is that it probably wouldn't have been safe to perform a nerve block when the patient was unable to stay still because there is a certain amount of compliance that's needed from the patient to accurately and safely perform these blocks.
1: Yeah, probably also add, um, probably not, haven't had the time yet to check about any sort of uh, heparin or clepsin. Oh, absolutely. Or, yeah. Not that that's an absolute contraindication, but that's a discussion for another day. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you mentioned earlier that one of your options is intravenous ketamine, which I personally think is a good option as well. Why wouldn't you give this now? Look,
0: it's not that I don't want to give it, but that I want to talk to the patient about nerve blocks Mm -hmm. and organise for informed consent before I actually administer any medication that's going to negate the patient's understanding of the procedure and the consent process. I'd offer both the administration of intravenous ketamine as well as nerve blocks. I'd explain the pros and cons of both and assist the patient in deciding what's actually going to be best for him.
1: Yeah, I mean, I do a fair bit of blocks. And I think the the best um, way to think about Blocks in recovery is probably a bit like a labour epidural. Yeah. Um, So, and that's another reason it's great to mention. If you're not planning on booking a patient, it's great to just mention it as an option preoperatively. Yeah. Because then they know about rescue blocks, which is great. Yeah,
0: and sometimes the thought needs to percolate before they're willing to actually get on board with it.
1: Or they wake up with severe pain in recovery and And realise they probably should have had a block. (laughs) That too. Would you consider um, placing a regional catheter rather than a single shot block for this patient?
0: Look, you could do that, but in my experience, single shot blocks are a little easier and they have a faster onset of analgesia. And we can always bring the patient back the following day to insert infusion catheters if his pain spirals out of control again.
1: Yeah, that's um, probably what I would do as well. Mm. So uh, you have a chat with the surgeons first as well, just to mm. check there's no issues with regards to surgical complications or concerns about compartment. Yeah, of course. And you perform a single shot femoral and sciatic blocks and they performed with good effect and the patient has now zero pain. Winning. Hurrah. But now you've obviously got to take care of them, make sure they're going to be okay on the ward. Is there mm. anything you can do to try to improve the patient's pain control after their discharge from PACU?
0: Well, we do have some options. So first, there is some evidence that dose splitting the patient's usual daily methadone can improve pain control. So let's assume that the patient takes 60 milligrams of methadone daily. By administering 30 milligrams twice daily or 20 milligrams eight hourly, we can actually provide him potentially with some better pain relief. Mm -hmm. I think it would also be a good idea to involve the alcohol, tobacco and other drug service in his care while he's an inpatient. So I'd set up a referral. Now, second, we need a good strategy for pain relief with these when these nerve blocks wear off and a multimodal analgesic plan would certainly benefit this man. Now, while I don't love the idea of a PCA in a patient that has previously suffered from addiction, we know that tibial plateau fractures are painful and that this patient's pain control is going to be difficult in the setting of his methadone and cannabis consumption. So it is definitely an option as is a ketamine infusion. Now, regardless of the treatment strategy, I'd refer this patient to the hospital's acute pain service because his pain will likely be a challenge to manage. And lastly, as a safety precaution, I'd want this patient to have overnight oximetry and I would write a prescription for oxygen, particularly if we decided on a PCA.
1: Okay, so that was a good case to cover since we find ourselves in these difficult situations more often than not. How do you feel about discussing one more case?
0: Well, to be perfectly honest, I don't have any problems at all since I'm not the one in the hot seat for this one, so are you ready? <laughs> yep,
1: as I'll ever be. Okay,
0: so it's 5.30 p.m. and you're the consultant on call at a medium-sized metropolitan hospital and receive a phone call from Paku. A general surgical patient is complaining of shortness of breath and the Paku nurse would like you to review her. What is your approach to a phone call? like this
1: so shortness of breath is is serious or can be serious and the patient does need pretty quick review so I'd minimize delay over the phone I'm going to ask the nurse to tell me the patient's observations uh, while the nurse increases the amount of supplemental oxygen that the patient is receiving I also want to tell the nurse that I'll be there within a few minutes and if the patient deteriorates rapidly before I arrive to hit the emergency buzzer
0: the nurse gives you the following observations. Oxygen saturation is 93% on 6 litres of oxygen via Hudson mask. Heart rate is 95 beats per minute. Blood pressure is 110 on 75 and respiratory rate is 24 per minute. She tells you that the patient has only stated that she can't breathe properly and that her abdomen is sore. When you arrive in the PACU several minutes later, you see the patient. She is a 57-year-old obese woman post-elective laparoscopic cholecystectomy. Comorbidities include hypertension, mild to moderate COPD that is currently well controlled, ischemic heart disease with a dilated cardiomyopathy and an ejection fraction of 40%, non-insulin dependent diabetes mellitus and a past history of DVT and PE in the setting of a factor V Leiden deficiency, usually managed with rivaroxaban that was ceased 7 days pre-op. The patient is diaphoretic, slightly drowsy, and has an increased work of breathing. She is now on 10 litres of oxygen via non-rebreather mask with oxygen saturation of 95%. Her other observations remain the same. What
1: is your approach to a situation like this? There are a few pressing issues here. The first is that the patient's oxygenation is still abnormal despite increasing the amount of supplemental oxygen. Secondly, the cause of shortness of breath is not obvious and with the patient's history, there are several different processes that could be occurring here. Right now, I'm going to do a couple of things in quick succession and spend no more than about five minutes doing them. I'm going to get a bit more history from the patient about the shortness of breath and any other symptoms like chest pain. I'm going to regularly check the patient's observations while I examine her and I'm going to go straight to the examinations that are going to help me differentiate the cause of her shortness of breath. I'm going to check capillary refill, JVP, auscultate the heart and lungs and assess the patient's fluid status. And while I'm talking to the patient and examining her, I'm going to get the PACU nurse to take an ECG.
0: You mentioned that there are several potential different causes for shortness of breath in this patient. Do you have a list of differential diagnoses for shortness of breath or difficulty breathing in the post-operative population?
1: Yeah, so we covered this a little bit, although I focus mostly on hypoxia yeah. um, rather than shortness of breath in the first case. But um, So patient causes can include respiratory failure, particularly if they have pre-morbid respiratory disease, bronchospasm or an exacerbation of asthma, respiratory infection, myocardial ischemia or infarction, cardiac failure or fluid overload, thromboembolic disease, ARDS and myasthenic crisis you can group anesthetic and surgical causes together because of the overlap. And these include atelectasis, aspiration, pneumothorax, fat embolism, laryngospasm, anemia, phrenic nerve or vocal cord damage, incomplete reversal of neuromuscular blockade and metabolic acidosis. Uh, And in her, I would say that, The things that come to front of mind given her poor ejection fraction would be potentially cardiac failure and fluid Mm. overload, but she's also got a history of Factor V Leiden uh, and so she's got a risk of thromboembolic disease. And these are probably two things I'd be wanting to keep front of mind.
0: Yeah, fair enough. The patient tells you that she woke up feeling short of breath. Her abdomen is sore at the surgical site and she feels nauseated. She denies any chest pain. While you talk to her, she nods off to sleep, jerking herself awake within a couple of seconds to take a large breath examination yielded a slightly sluggish capillary refill of three seconds jvp of five centimeters and auscultation of the chest showed scattered crackles and wheeze throughout both lung fields and an ejection systolic murmur there is pedal edema to the mid tibia the ecg shows a left bundle branch block which is old and a heart rate of 93 beats per minute where do you go from here
1: so, the cause of the shortness of breath isn't obvious, but obviously it looks like she may kind of simultaneously be fluid overloaded yeah. and then intra, but intravascularly dry, which is something you see quite a lot in these sort of patients, mm, definitely, particularly perioperatively. So, I'm going to do a few investigations. I'm also going to have a quick look at the anesthetic record because I didn't actually administer this anesthetic. And I want to improve this lady's comfort. So, I'm going to get the PACU nurse to give her some analgesia, probably in the form of a fentanyl post operative pain protocol and give her an antiemetic because she does feel nauseated. Mm. Uh, and abdominal pain may also be contributing to her feeling of shortness of breath.
0: Okay. So what investigations are you going to
1: perform? So look, I'm going to do an ABG first. While that's being analysed, you could consider formal blood. So looking at go full blood count, a UNE, troponins. You could consider a BNP, probably the med will probably want to talk to you about that first. <laughs> and I'm also going to order a uh, chest x-ray.
0: Okay, fair enough. At this stage, what do you think the more likely differentials for this patient's presentation are?
1: There are a number of possible causes, but at the moment, I think uh, the more likely ones are atelectasis with abdominal splinting. And note that you see atelectasis in nearly every post-operative surgical patient. It's just a matter of degree. You know, it could be in pneumothorax. It'll be quite easily, um, Mm. you know, on the x-ray should exclude that. Uh, possibly af- aspiration or bronchospasm, residual neuromuscular blockade. But I think more likely is um, possibly fluid overload. Yeah. She could have some thromboembolic disease developing in the form of a PE. Uh, she could be could be anemic. Um, the blood gas should tell us what her hemoglobin is. Depends how much blood she lost during the procedure and what her preoperative state was as well.
0: So assessment of the patient's anaesthetic record tells you that the induction was complicated by a difficult intubation with three attempts. The patient was given repeated doses of rocuronium throughout with regular TOF monitoring. Reversal was with an appropriate dose of Sugamidex and the TOF ratio was one before extubation. What a good anaesthetist. Hmm. The surgery was complex and took three hours and during this time the patient received 400 micrograms of fentanyl, paracetamol one gram intravenously, dexamethasone 8mg intravenously and 2 litres of normal saline. Fentanyl administered by the PACU nurse has eased the patient's pain from 6 out of 10 to 2 out of 10 and her nausea has settled with ondansetron 4mg IV. The patient looks slightly more comfortable but still reports feeling short of breath. Her observations are oxygen saturation at 95%, heart rate at 88 beats per minute, blood pressure of 110 on 60 and respiratory rate of 18 per minute. Arterial blood gas reveals a mild respiratory alkalosis with a PaO2 of 60 millimetres of mercury and a haemoglobin of 115. Electrolytes and lactate are within normal limits. Mobile chest x-ray shows evidence of bilateral atelectasis with a slightly elevated right hemidiaphragm. There is also evidence of fluid overload and a visible horizontal fissure. Formal bloods are not back. So what do you do at this point?
1: So firstly, with that PAO2, she's just clinging onto the top of the uh, oxygen hemoglobin mm. sort of dissociation curve there. So uh, I would change her from a non-rebreather mass to high flow nasal prongs. Mm. Um, and so often you start these at about 30 litres, but you can work your way up to 50 and 70 litres of mm. flow. And if you have got a mixer, um, I'd probably start an FIO2 of 50% and kind of titrate it. Sometimes you don't have a mixer and you mm. can only do 100% oxygen. Mm. But I think a bit of peep um, wouldn't do it any harm. It would mm. be good for her.
0: Absolutely. So it seems
1: to be few different factors going on. Uh, Fluid overload does look like it's a factor I'd want to treat that. You've also got evidence of atelectasis Mm. uh, which is more comfortable now so at least from an analgesia point of view she can breathe up a little better from um, that perspective. So we've changed the oxygen. I'd give a dose of furosemide usually with intravenous furosemide it's pretty potent. Mm. I'd give them 10 milligrams IV and see what happens. Um, I'd place a urinary or I'd get someone else to place a urinary catheter (laughs) and uh, we'd start a fluid balance chart Uh, if you can get a physiotherapist to come and see the patient and work on the rate electasis that's ideal even after hours mm. uh, and continue the pain relief as needed so an
0: hour passes and the furosemide elicits a diuresis of 1100 ml. the patient says she still feels short of breath but it is a little better and she is pain free observations are as follows oxygen saturation is 97 percent on high flow nasal prongs with 50 liters of flow and an fio2 of 50 percent heart rate is 80 beats per minute Blood pressure is 110 on 60 and respiratory rate is 16 breaths per minute. Formal bloods are not back yet and the physiotherapist has not yet arrived. The PACU nurse approaches you and asks when the patient can go to the ward. What is your response?
1: Yeah, so look, firstly, I should mention, I don't think we've actually mentioned reviewing the ECG, but this is a diabetic patient oh, who already age. has evidence of cardiac failure. She's also female, so they can present with uh, atypical ischemia. So I'm mm. wanting to rule out cardiac ischemia. Mm. And um, I believe
0: patients with diabetes can have silent ischemia exactly. as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. So look, in terms of um, the patient's post-operative destination, she appears to be improving a bit, but she's still needing significant respiratory support and remains short of breath. So the question is whether the amount of support she's needing matches up with what I think is going on. So, look, there could be something else going on, but I feel like in most – it does depend where you work and what your respiratory – if you have a respiratory ward and what kind of patients they're used to looking after. Mm -hmm. I think a high dependency unit kind of area would be ideal for this patient overnight for monitoring and to titrate her nasal oxygen. If there's issues – With this, then you could consider sending her to the ward, um, provided she could have overnight oximetry or perhaps a nurse special to keep an eye on her, Mm. Um, hand her over to make sure she receives medical review in my hospital. We do have um, an up late uh, med reg that can come and see these sort of patients. Communication with the surgical registrar on calls of the patient's team to make sure that they chase the bloods and hand over to the treating team the next morning. And, and also instigate further investigations see if the patient's not improving and also see if we can touch base with the physiotherapist to see if she can be seen so like ideally HDU but, we could probably put some, it really depends mm. on your institution, but yeah. we could put something in place on the ward if need be but 50% on high flow nasal oxygens. A That's fair not bit, insignificant.
0: So. I feel like certainly at our hospital, even a patient like this would be a hard sell to mm. intensive care. Mm. So it's
1: something to keep in mind. It just depends on what else is going on, I yeah, think. Yeah, exactly. So Kate, what diagnoses are you concerned about? So I think as we've mentioned previously, she does have a history of cardiac failure, I've sort of haven't un- quite elucidated the cause of that, and she's also got factor five light deficiencies. So I'm wanting to exclude heart failure, but also an ischemic event leading to maybe further valve issues, and also exclude thromboembolic disease.
0: So look, I'd say that this case is actually quite accurate to many of the cases of shortness of breath that we see in the PACU because often we don't get a clear diagnosis before the patient is just just discharge the ward. And we have to implement management strategies with a kind of shoot from the hip approach because we don't have that definitive cause for the patient's symptoms.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, they're patients who are partially differentiated. Uh, It's not dissimilar to patients coming through the ed except yeah. we have the benefit that they've already had um, the histories taken and you know some other bits yeah. and pieces but it can be really non-specific and you just need to take your time to work through things while simul- simultaneously treating the issue at hand yeah so you yeah, look it can be frustrating uh it's challenging sometimes to appraise your own practice and realize that you can't always just snap your fingers and come to an answer. But the main thing is keeping the patient safe.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So look, unfortunately this brings us to the end of our case discussion addressing some of the problems we encounter in the PACU. But before we sign off, Kate, what have you learned this week in anaesthesia?
1: Yeah, so I've had an interesting experience. So with the, some of the study I'm doing, I have a little cohort that I do that with. And uh, one of the people in this group just sent me the most lovely message saying some really nice, positive things to me about uh, oh, me as a person and, and how I interact with the group and what I bring. And, and that was really a reminder that it's nice to sometimes tell people how you're feeling. Oh, and absolutely. it really, that just made my day. It was such a lovely thing to receive. And I think I need to pay that forward and if someone's done a really great job or has done something really nice or um, just really take the effort to acknowledge that person um, either in person or if it's over you know email or another mechanism because it can just really lift you know lift you and I think um, as humans we tend to focus on the negative things that have been said about us or negative experiences in our past but I listened to a podcast recently saying you should file those positive things away and that's your little bank of nice positive things about yourself and yeah, it was just lovely and so that's what I've learnt this week. nice. Hmm. How about you? Well,
0: the moral of this week's sort of what Kate has learnt this week is do it once, do it well. So, I had a situation where I was on an orthopaedic list and I had a patient that was Non-obese, low risk of aspiration where a laryngeal mask airway was very appropriate because it wasn't a particularly long case. And unfortunately, about 15 minutes into the surgery, the laryngeal mask airway started misbehaving for want of a better way of saying it. So what would have been a very easy and straightforward intubation with good positioning and planning suddenly became... Mm -hmm a bit of a pain in the butt, you know, difficult patient positioning. I was crawling under the drapes. Like there were <laughs> lots of lots of factors that were making mm. life very difficult for me. And look, everything went fine. The patient didn't desaturate. The tube went in without any sort of trauma to the patient's airway or damaging teeth or anything like that. But, geez, it was difficult. It mm. would have been so much easier if I'd just done it well. And look, I have to keep in mind that, you know, assessing anything with hindsight is a luxury, and often you don't have you you don't appreciate some of the problems that you may ensue further down the track. You know, if we had, if I could see into the future, this would have been a much easier case to deal with. <laughs> but I can't, so we do the best we could we do at the time. But um, certainly, if at any stage you're not happy with an airway, if you can change it before those drapes go on, mm. my goodness, just change it because once those drapes are on and the patient's poorly <laughs> positioned, life
1: can be so much harder. That's a lot of work. That's mm. exactly right. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Deep Breaths. If you like what you hear or would like to give us some suggestions, be sure to email us at deepbreathspod at gmail.com because we love hearing from you. Be sure to spread the word follow us on your favourite podcast platform. We're currently
0: planning episodes for next year, so if there's a topic you'd like us to address, then please let us know and we'll do our best to make it happen. Thanks for listening and we hope you can join us next time on Deep
1: Breaths.